Welcome to the JMD podcast, your audio extension of the Journal of Inherited Metaboid Disease. In fortnightly instalments, I speak with authors about their recent journal articles, hoping to gain a little more insight into their work and helping them to shout about what they're doing to a slightly different audience. If you're enjoying the podcast, then please click subscribe, tell your friends, or even leave a review, but not before this latest episode on the use of genomic technologies in metabolic disorders. So it's always exciting to talk about the future of therapies in IMD and to have a look at the conditions that we haven't talked about much so far on the podcast. So I'm doubly delighted to welcome Senior Investigator Charles Venditti from the National Human Genome Research Institute at the NIH to discuss his recent paper, Treatment of Metabolic Disorders Using Genomic Technologies, Lessons from MMA. Uh, Chuck, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a delight to be here and have this discussion with you and all the people who are going to tune in and listen to our comments on something that's near and dear to my heart, which is the study of methylmalonic acidemia. And I must confess, so I've, I'm somewhat embarrassed, in fact, to admit that we did an episode on the diagnosis and management of MMA and PA, and I asked my guests about their guideline and development of the guideline and diagnostic clues, but I kind of neglected to ask about MMA itself. Obviously, it's not mixed martial arts. Could you <laughs> begin, well, that's how we're going to get our followers, um, but could I ask you to begin at the beginning with a brief explanation of methylmalonic acidemias? Sure. And uh, again, for those who are listening, there's a review article that's published in the J of IMD that really details the hereditary methylmalonic acidemias. But the hereditary methylmalonic acidemias are a group of recessive inborn errors of metabolism that mainly affect the oxidation of the branched chain amino acids, valine, isoleucine, methionine, and threonine, as well as odd chain fatty acid metabolism. The disorders are characterized by absolutely massive levels of this metabolite called methylmalonic acid and related metabolites that build up when there's an enzyme block at the level of the methylmalonocholine step in metabolism. So patients with this group of disorders have very, very massively elevated levels of this MMA. It's elevated in the tissues, serum, plasma, spinal fluid, and urine. It's actually elevated in all the body fluids. And that's the hallmark of the hereditary methylmalonic acidemias. Now, there are a very large group of conditions that have an etiology of increased MMA due to a deficiency of vitamin B12. And the reason for that is because the enzyme that metabolizes methylmalonocoenzyme A, which is where methylmalonic acid comes from, is one of the two enzymes in human metabolism that's vitamin B12 dependent. So for those people that might be listening or they're trying to read about MMA, probably in the population level, the most common cause of methylmalonic acidemia mild elevations, that is, is a vitamin deficiency. But for the purpose of this discussion, we're talking about patients who have genetic enzymopathies. And when one thinks about the hereditary methylmalonic acidemias as a very large group of you know heterogeneous conditions, in other words, patients can have different enzyme defects and have high MMA levels. But as a group, the most common form of severe isolated methylmalonic acidemia is deficiency of the enzyme methylmalonocholine mutase caused by mutations in that gene, the MMUT gene, which is the subject of this review. Um, I'm really glad that you're the one saying all those enzyme names and, and not me. Um, it's obviously a well-known condition that's even screened for in parts of the world. We only screen for conditions we can treat, right? Well, that's the ongoing debate um, that dates back to the very beginning of newborn screening itself. And there are definitely believers in, in the statement that MMA is a treatable condition. I'm one of them. I must say to you and to others that are listening, I began studying methylmalonic acidemia many, many years ago when I was a metabolic fellow at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. 
And at that time in the United States, we started, we, the colloquial we, I wasn't doing it. I was seeing patients who had abnormal newborn screens because it started happening in the United States in the late 1990s, which is the supplemental expanded screening for a variety of inborn errors of metabolism using acylcarnitine ester profile methodologies to fingerprint and perform almost like uh, newborn screening metabolomics to find patients that had increased propanocarnitine, a patient who has a biomarker could have methylmalonic acidemia. And so, yes, newborn screening has been in place for methylmalonic acidemia in the United States and other places around the world, and particularly Australia, for more than a decade. And after the pilot studies were performed in the United States in the 90s, the conditions, many of them, not just methylmalonic acidemia, but a number of other disorders were nominated and now there is routine screening for MMA and a number of related organic acidemias and amino acidopathies in all babies born in the United States, known as the RUSP, the Recommended Universal Screening Panel. There was a lot of discussion, and there always is, about newborn screening, adding a condition to a newborn screen panel. Something you just brought up that's very important, James, is, is the condition treatable? That is part of the fundamental premise of proposing a screen. And then the second part is, is the natural history understood? So these these things go together. And I can tell you that there was a lot of debate. Always there's debate about newborn screening. When someone wants to add a condition to go back to criteria and figure out, you know, should a country, should, a, should the world, should we do this? Can our country implement the screening effectively in a time and cost-effective manner and find the patients and treat them? Are they, is it treatable? And so in the beginning, there was a lot of debate about some of the disorders we screen for now in the United States because there was a discussion about whether some of these conditions are treatable. And it's still a discussion that goes on to this day. Again, I will continue this comment because I think it's an important thread. With MMA and the related disorder propionic acidemia, many patients that are on the severe end of the spectrum can present with hyperaminemic encephalopathy. And in those settings, unfortunately, and even in some countries where there's a very robust healthcare delivery systems, identification, screening, and treatment, there can be fatalities and there can be severe neurologic injuries that can be sustained by some of the infants if they're not detected and treated immediately. I will also say that we and others have published on this and patients can with MMA and some with propionic acidemia can recover from hyperaminemic encephalopathy and recover cognition that falls in within normal limits. So there's, there was a big debate about this. I'm, I'm, I'm digressing because this will get us into this discussion of how will you treat? Well, I mean, yeah, no, there, there is, there is so much to unpick in that. And I, in some ways, it's a shame we have to move on. You know, I'm come from a country where we don't currently screen from MMA, despite being a country with it's, you know, it's a, we like to think we've got a pretty good healthcare system. But when we had that debate, they obviously fell on the, the other side of the argument. We've talked about the dangers of hyperaminemia in different podcasts, albeit in relation to UCD and, and how relatively low levels of ammonia can have uh, lifelong consequences in terms of neurological sequelae, if, if, you know, if they don't lead to death. And yeah, so much to unpick there. Um, just briefly, in regards to the current state of play for treatment, you said it's a treatable condition. The treatment, like for many, IMD is not a simple treatment, is it? No, it's not. And this, is, again, is a debate what someone means when they say treatment. Because in many countries, someone would say, yes, we can treat MMA. We put patients on a low-protein diet. Maybe we give them carnitine or not. And maybe we give medical foods or not. And we are vigilant about nutrition and any intercurrent symptomatology that the patient has. And we admit them quickly to the hospital and we try to control any recurrent hyperaminemia or lactic ketoacidosis that can occur and its sequela. And some people think that's a treatment. 
Now, when I think of treatment, I, I sort of think back to, um, you know, maybe this would resonate to people that are doing pediatric practice. When someone sees someone that has otitis media, that's bacterial, and you treat it. You see what it is. It's a red eardrum. There's pain. There's fever. You give antibiotics. goes away. The patient's treated. You know, they're cured. With metabolic disorders, particularly like MMA, I think we all want that. We all want this single treatment that's going to basically, quote unquote, cure the patient. So that this is where the new techniques come in because the current treatment of MMA, and again, I would say it depends on where a person practices medicine and where, what country they're in. The trend that we are seeing at the NIH, I think in the United States, and it would be you know, of interest to get opinions of other people, is very early elective liver transplant for patients that have, quote unquote, a severe phenotype. And so is that a, a treatment? Is that an effective treatment? It's a surgical treatment. Some people think that that is really the best approach to treat MMA. Now, I can also state that we have followed many, many patients that have a variety of transplants, more than two dozen over probably more than a decade and a half. And it's well known also to people that are in the medical audience listening to this, that after someone receives a transplant, we're talking about a liver or a liver kidney transplant, that is a state, that's a disease state that, that involves chronic immune suppression and involves continued maintenance and monitoring. And in patients with MMA, it also involves continued vigilance about dietary and medical management. So people talk about treatment, but that's sort of where we're at. And this is part of why we start to think, could we do something that could give the benefits of enzyme replacement to the liver and possibly beyond in lieu of doing a solid organ transplant or something that's very a really, really restrictive medical regimen where many of our patients, for example, have needed central line placement because they need recurrent metabolic instability and they need fluids and they need access. So that, that's part of where we're getting to with the discussion about, you know, why we're doing what we're doing. I think when you step back and say we're doing elective liver transplants to treat patients with MMA and related disorders, and is that an acceptable current therapy? When one factors in procedural risks and long-term monitoring, that is where you could have a debate about one person might think that is a perfectly adequate treatment. And another person might say, I think we have to do better. I'm in the latter camp. I think we have to do better. And that's part of the reason we've been doing the research we've been doing over the years to try to develop new treatments for MMA. Yeah, I mean, what you're saying, I expect it resonates with a lot of people about a number of metabolic conditions. You've got a treatment that basically consists of constant vigilance, um, worries about fighting fires, and as you say, swapping one disease for another with a with a liver transplant. So it's hardly a, a perfect solution. I mean, I love talking about disease models within the papers. And actually, you know, in the podcast, we've come back to them, we've compared zebrafish and mice and pluripotent stem cells and even chimpanzees with ALD. You have three different mouse models. Are you just being greedy? Uh, you know, three is an understatement. I mean, and, I, and we and others have developed many, many different mouse models. And part of the reason for this is because when one makes animal models, one of the goals is to try to recapitulate as close as one can the animal model to an analogous treatment scenario for a patient. So, you know, this is a big leap, right? A mouse to a human. This is where people always criticize animal models. It turns out that the pathways inside the cell that do the metabolism of vitamin B12, the actual enzymes that are very close to the conversion of methylmalonyl-CoA into succinyl-CoA in the Krebs cycle are nearly identical between mice and humans. So it's of no surprise then when we and others have made severe genetic knockouts of the methylmalonyl-CoA-mutase enzyme, it produces an extreme phenotype in mice, near immediately thalidomide. And for those who don't know this, neonatal mice 
are the equivalent of quite premature human infant. So there's always concerns about using these very, very young animals that are very severely affected. Of course, it's great on the experimental side to enable a therapy. If you can take a mouse that has 100% death by 48 hours of life and do an intervention and get that mouse to live three months, six months, more than a year, that's amazing. So we, of course, did some of those studies early on in our studies of enabling canonical or conventional recombinant AAV gene therapy. That was part of what created an immense amount of excitement. And then the reason why you would make other models, and again, this goes back to the physiology of the methylmalonychoemetase enzyme, and it's the following, and this is related to other organic acetamines, that these enzymes, they are expressed in other places in the body other than the liver. The liver is very important. We know from lots of animal studies, the liver must be helped, fixed, corrected to actually really provide a phenotypic benefit to a sick animal with methylmalonic acetamine. And so that's part of what we did in some of our other studies, which is to use transgenesis and knockout genetics to figure out where you have to add the enzyme back to get a phenotypic effect. What we learned from mice is it must be given back to the liver, but that doesn't fully correct, just like a patient with a liver transplant. We also learned that you can correct the skeletal muscle, again, by the same approach, and you can definitely get a benefit in the mice. It can rescue the mice from lethality. I'm talking about neonatal lethality. It can provide long-term correction. So in other words, if you just express the methylmalonychoemetase enzyme only in a skeletal muscle, it will rescue an animal. But the animal has a pretty severe form of methylmalonic acidemia because the liver and the kidney and other tissues are not corrected. So those mice are, are quite sick, actually. And those are beautiful animal models to look for liver-directed therapy. And that's what we and others have done. So there's other groups that have made really important animal models. And, I, I, you know, people have made other knockout mutations, putting specific gene mutations into the orthologous position. Other groups have done that. People have made flox alleles. These are preconditional genetics. People have made specific transgenic mice that have stop codon mutations knocked back into them. And so you can see for stop codon modulation. So there's a lot of other animal models. We talk about them in the review. I mean, so that explains why you need those different mouse models. And I wonder if you could just briefly explain how canonical AAV gene therapy fits in with that. But going back to the AAV studies, so what we have done is sort of two lines of study. One is to use the AAV, which is a non-pathogenic human virus that's been configured for gene delivery to rescue the very, very sick neonatal mice. That works well. And so when we test our erectors and we study gene therapy reagents, we want to always try to ask the question, how potent it is. Can it rescue the neonate? And then we have another model where we've done a genetic addback of the enzyme leading to the muscle beds. And those mice have the hepatorenal cerebral syndrome of MMA. So those mice, of course, can be used to test pretty much any gene therapy vector, but specifically ones that target the liver. And those mice have helped us enable, again, a variety of treatments. And one that will be coming to the clinic is a liver-directed AV gene therapy that's going to be used with immune modulation to treat mutase deficiency. That's the first step. There's other ones that you know, one can imagine. And with respect to AV, there's even lots more to say about AV. Not everyone can receive every sort of AV because people can have pre-existing immunity to the AV capsid. So if you pick a, a gene therapy vector and you have a cassette, and for example, we are proposing to use an AV8 serotype, well, some patients could be immune to the AV8 capsid. And if they're immune to the capsid from natural infections, they won't be candidates to receive an AV8 gene therapy. Now, the way around that is to use a different serotype or to immune modulate. So that's a separate topic. But in the first approximation, the way we envision canonical AV gene therapy to work is a single infusion into the patient. So a single IV, 
this is not going to be done in an outpatient clinic or in a, in a pediatric office. It's going to be done in a very controlled setting, an inpatient environment. There'll be a preparatory phase, obviously, for the patients so that they can be stabilized, they can have access, they can be monitored, and they will receive the medicine with great caution and monitoring. But it would be essentially amount to a single infusion. And that virus will then travel through the blood of the patient and it'll transduce many cells. So in other words, it will, it will go and infect lots of different types of cells. But the way that the virus is designed is that it will only express predominantly in the hepatocyte. And so this is the equivalent for very much simplified thought is we're getting like an IV to get a liver transplant, except there's no surgery. And we could potentially get the great benefits that we know a successful liver transplant can confer upon sick and fragile MMA patients. So that's the first iteration of the AV. As I said, there's other things that one can discuss. There's ways you can change the cassette. You can imagine, we didn't talk about it much in this paper, but we've created an AV vector that in mice, it transduces into the brain very effectively into the basal ganglia from the peripheral circulation. So it's an IV in the mice, not exactly, it's a retroorbital injection, which is equivalent to systemic delivery in, in the mouse. But then that virus brings the transgene into the mouse's brain and it expresses it at a high level in the striatum. So the AV biology will allow us to really go well beyond this first iteration, which is the safest and what is here, what is now, which is liver-directed therapy using a systemic delivery of AVA. I wanted to ask, actually, you mentioned that in your neonatal mouse model, you have a mouse that will die within 24 hours, but you can treat it and, and it lives for, for months. How quickly does gene therapy start working? It feels a bit like science fiction if you can change the course of someone's illness in 24 hours. Well, you know, that's a, that's a good question because the conventional thinking previously was that AV, the ones I'm talking about in this discussion are single-stranded AVs, so they need the second-strand replication to make a competent genome that will express the transgene. And that, that was thought to take around two weeks. However, in the mice, what we know is if the mice die by 24 hours of age, and we're injecting them, say, at 12 hours of age, and then they live, and some of our experiments, they live with nearly 100% survival rate. That means that that uncoding nuclear transport, second-strand synthesis, and or annealing, which is something separate, has to happen very, very quickly, or else the mice would die. And we studied this. We actually studied this in an older paper uh, where we were looking at an AV9 serotype, which is a different serotype of AV that has different properties in mice and in humans. And indeed, we could find very, very early expression of the transgene in the liver of mice when we treated mice very early in life. Now, whether this will happen in a human is unknown. Fair enough. Well, it is exciting um, and you know slightly bizarre. So that's AAV gene therapy. The next approach is systemic mRNA therapy. And, and we've actually talked about this quite recently in a discussion on future therapies in galactosemia. But it sounds like from your paper that research in MMA is slightly further along. I wonder if you could explain mRNA therapy briefly for me. Sure. Again, you know, for those listening that don't know about mRNA therapy, think about Moderna and the Pfizer COVID vaccines. They use that technology. Now, what you do in, in the gene therapy application is similar theoretically. And basically this, and this is a very oversimplification of the process, this mRNA that encodes the human methylmalonyl-CoA mutase gene is mixed with this detergent in a specific fashion to create tiny little particles, lipid nanoparticles. And inside those lipid nanoparticles is the mRNA. 
And so what we worked on with Moderna and published this in 2017, which was pre-COVID for those who are, you know, putting this in historical perspective, Moderna was able to make this formulation and we use one of our mouse models, the model of the hepatorenal cerebral syndrome of MMA that misses the enzyme in the liver. That actually so far has helped enable three new genome-based therapies for patients. So what happens in this setting is the mice are given the LNP as a systemic injection. So much like an AV, and in a patient it would be IV. And it's injected into systemic circulation. And these lipid nanoparticles float around into the blood of the animal and presumably the patients. And they tend to concentrate in the liver and in other tissues as well, and in probably in the reticular endothelial system. But they concentrate in the liver. And in the liver, the particles are taken up. They quote unquote uncoat, or maybe the way to think of this is they dissolve inside the cell. They release the mRNA. The mRNA is then translated into the active enzyme. And the enzyme is then uses the natural pathway of the cell to be processed and to be localized into the mitochondria where it is active. In the mice, it was clear this works. The enzyme is processed. It produces an effect on the metabolite levels in the mice. And the other thing that we showed in our study was that this treatment, similar to AV gene therapy, restores the ability of the animals to oxidize carbon-13 labeled propionic acid into CO2. And this is a very good test, an in vivo test to see if what you're doing in a mouse and or a patient is actually functioning in the liver. The What one does in mice, and again, it can be done in patients, but done many, many years ago by Dr. Walter's group and patients with MMAPA, is to give heavy carbon. So carbon-13 labeled propionic acid, which then is converted in the liver into propionyl-CoA, which is a precursor of methylmonyl-CoA. So if the mutase enzyme is active in the liver, what will happen is the mouse or the patient will release heavy carbon in their breath. So you can see just by doing a breath test on the mice and patients, if the hepatic enzyme that you are giving by your therapy is active because the patient will now release heavy carbon in their breath, no blood draws. They just breathe into a tube. That's it. And you see if they enrich, if they didn't enrich and then they enrich after the treatment, you know it worked in their liver. It doesn't matter what the level is. That tells you functionally it's working. So we did that study as well. We do that in our gene therapy studies, and we did it with mRNA, and it actually worked in the mRNA study as well. And I'm not involved with that study. I'm told it's proceeding. I know there's a clinicaltrials.gov entry on this. The people from Moderna or, or their academic collaborators would be able to comment on where it stands. But I believe some patients may have been dosed, but I don't know that for certain. The mRNA stuff is certainly very exciting. But I mean, we were constantly reassuring people during the pandemic, or we're still in the pandemic. I need to put this in historic context, but I think it's hard to say we're fully out of it yet. That this doesn't change your, you know, it's not gene therapy, because obviously there were people who were saying the vaccines were gene therapy. So it does mean that there is this need to to redose, isn't there, with, with mRNA therapies, potentially on quite a regular basis. Uh, I know we get vaccine boosters, but the dosing interval could be quite uh, frequent, I think. Yes, that's absolutely the case. This is not a single therapy. In fact, Moderna went on to study, again, some of the other mouse models described in the publication to look at that, to see you know how frequent the mouse might need to get redosed. And they have some numbers based on mice, but it's looking around 10 days, 14 days or something that the enzyme will probably need to be redosed. In the mice, that seemed like that was an interval. I'll also say this about the mRNA therapy, and this was in our 2017 paper, which is it's very quick acting. So 
in that paper, there's you know lots of detail about the kinetics. So after the mRNA is given, the RNA then is detectable in the liver, and then the enzyme is made pretty quickly after, and then the enzyme disappears. So for safety considerations, this is an important thought. Anyways, if there was some sort of toxicity, it can be turned on or off. Or if there's no toxicity, it can be turned on, probably left on at a higher level. The interval, as you mentioned, is a total unknown. And for patients who will receive this as a chronic therapy, if that is what will happen someday, is absolutely going to require multiple IV infusions, whether it's going to be central access or peripheral IVs, that's unknown. But certainly this is not a a durable therapy. It's going to last as long as the enzyme half-life is in the patient with respect to the threshold of what the dose is needed to give a clinical and biochemical response. Well, it's still nice to have options there, I suppose. Now, next, we're moving into uncharted territory for me. I'm, I'm not sure if I'm going to even pronounce this right. You've got AAV-mediated nuclease-free 3, I don't like this, I've got a lisp, directed albumin editing. I mean, what's that all about? Okay, yeah, this is a mouthful. It'd be three prime. So the way this works, and again, this is done in collaboration with a company called Logic Biotherapeutics. And this methodology was originally developed by Professor Mark Kay from Stanford and his postdoctoral fellow, Adi Barzil, who then used this technology to form a company that has the basis of this technology they developed, which they call GeneRed. And so the way this works, and again, it's sort of detailed a little bit in the paper. This is a harder one to sort of grasp. So what one does with this is one uses the AAV genome as a template for liver-directed homologous recombination. And so recall that homologous recombination is a way that cells can take DNA, and there's different ways cells can do this. But in the simplest thinking about homologous recombination, it's uh, what it sounds like the cell will find bits of DNA on one end of a molecule that match sort of another end inside the cell. And it'll find the material on the other side of that sort of DNA molecule. They'll recognize them and sort of stitch them together. And then what, what happens in this application is the AV is bringing in those pieces on either end. And then what's in the middle, when the cell stitches this into the genome in a specific location, you can control that by the DNA sequence, is the gene of interest. And in this case, it's the methyl monocoin mutase gene. And there's a specific trick that's used, which is to borrow a peptide called the 2A peptide from a virus. And that is placed immediately in front of the methyl monocoin mutase gene, but in frame with the end of the albumin. And the reason I say this is three prime, because this works by using the very last exon of albumin. And what happens after homologous recombination is that the new albumin gene, the edited gene, will have the three prime exon, the last exon of albumin, replaced with what you're putting in with the AV, which contains the methyl mutase gene. And this spiral peptide enables the cell to make two enzymes out of one fusion transcript that contains the albumin and the methyl mutase gene that's been inserted after the three prime stop codon of albumin. So then what happens in the cell is the mutase enzyme now is made under the control of the natural albumin promoter. It's part of the genome. It's permanent. It's integrated. And when that happens, the albumin is also modified at the very, very end from this little tiny bit of the spiral peptide that enables the 
bifunctional expression of two peptides from a single fused mRNA. And one can detect that as a biomarker, a modified albumin 2A. So that's the way it works. That's the three-prime approach. And so what was done in the mice, and again, using mice that have the hepatorenal cerebral syndrome, you can target the liver only. And then showing those mice, you can correct into the albumin locus. The mice have a clinical and a biochemical benefit. And over time, the ALB2A levels, which is a marker of the edited albumin, increase over time in the mice. What we learned from these studies is that corrected cells have an advantage, have a growth advantage. We don't understand this yet. This is something new that the genomic therapies have taught us about disease pathophysiology, this new observation, which no one knew before. And the reason we figured this out is because over time, the mice were expressing more and more enzyme, methylmalonyl-CoA mutase, and higher and higher levels of AB2A. And it's because the, the clones that were generated after successful homologous recombination have a growth advantage in the setting of a diseased liver of MMA. And they grow better than the brother-sister clone, the cell that doesn't have the correction. So, you know, they probably die less. They're probably resistant to death versus growing faster. That's that's our theory. And so that, that's been sort of really exciting. And that treatment has been taken to the clinic by Logic Biotherapeutics. Patients have been treated. I'm not involved with the clinical trial. We are all waiting to hear the results. No one knows if it worked or not. But I don't know if that's an, enough of an explanation for three prime editing. Well, I think it's something I can sort of get my head around. It was very well put because it's obviously quite a complicated idea. It's exciting that it's already in place. And I think one of the issues perhaps with AAV or, or maybe it's not an issue, but it's something that I understood previously is when from generation to generation, you end up losing cell lines. So you're, there is this risk of diminishing um, response over time. And although we talk about lifetime correction, you wanted that cure. We we just don't know that that's what we're going to get with AAV gene therapy. So having one that seems to get bigger in terms of response rather than smaller sounds very exciting from a treatment point of view. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned that because AVs are conventionally thought to act in the canonical sense via episodes. So they don't integrate. Now, I say that, but I also will tell you that AVs definitely do integrate at a very, very low rate, but it's part of the, something separate. It's a random process that there's low-level integration. Whereas the editing approaches that go into the three prime and five prime end of albumin, as you say, that produces permanent correction. And, you know, could it be refined enough to last forever in a patient? It's unknown. In mice, it does. No one wants to wait for the study that so it takes a whole lifetime to run because our, our patients haven't got that long to wait. Um, you've kind of alluded to it there. You said three prime, but right at the end, you talk about AAV mediated nuclease enhanced and nuclease free five prime targeted albumin editing. It sounds similar, but two, two more. I mean, this is like going up to 11. Is this, is this just better? <laughs> what's, what's the difference? Well, um, in that paper, there's actually four more. <laughs> Four more approaches to editing, and I won't be able to go through the real, real details of this, but it's a similar idea in that what one wants to do here is target an editing event or an integration event into albumin, because albumin is felt to be, again, at a low level, a quote-unquote safe harbor. So we could insert a gene into albumin. Now, there's debate about this. Obviously, people need albumin, but the amount of editing that would happen in these settings is probably not going to affect the serum albumin level for a number of reasons. So there's the five prime effect is a different idea, a different way to do it. And in the publication that we talk about and one we published on, one targets the first intron of albumin. So this is like in some ways a safer, even a safe harbor within a safe harbor. 
you're going into a non-coding intron and then you put your cassette into the intron and the way that this would work again it needs a nuclease there's cutting of the dna at a specific location the cassette inserts into the intron and then instead of making albumin you're basically knocking out albumin in that specific allele and replacing it with your cassette that expresses the methyl monocoimutase enzyme. It works wonderful and nice. That All the things we t- tested work great. But the one that's really, I think, the most intriguing is one of the cassettes we used that targets the very beginning of albumin, the, literally the ATG. Remember that genes start with, most genes start with ATG. That's the start code. So this application, we made a cassette and had a nuclease that cuts between the A and the T of the ATG. So the very beginning of the gene, and we put our gene, which is the methyl monocoimutase enzyme, into that location. Now, it turns out that the way that this cassette is designed, in, in this application, it has homology arms to enhance recombination at that location after a genomic cut. What we discovered in the mice was that the AAV itself, when it's designed like that, functions as a homologous recombination vector, as well as an episome as well as a cassette that can be enhanced after nuclease treatment. So again, the reason why this is significant is because the other cassettes I talked about with the three prime editing approach, those do not express the methyl monocoimutase enzyme when they are given to mice and presumably to patients because they don't have a promoter or enhancer on them. But this cassette that we use for this five prime editing approach, one of them has a small promoter from the natural albumin locus, which is the mouse in this case. But it has, and we know this because we studied this in the publication, it rescues the mice with and without nuclease. And then without nuclease enhancement, we see the same type of integration patterns we see with the three-prime editing. So this could be an approach where one gets an episome plus an integrant benefit, and you might not need a nuclease. So this is like the real, the future directions, which are something that's actively being studied in the laboratory. But it's it's super exciting because one could think that that is the type of therapy where you get an immediate benefit from the AV as an episome, and then this prolonged benefit as an, an integrant. And it's safe because it's going to go into the albumin locus. You sound really excited about this. I'm listening to you. It's hard not to get excited too. You certainly conclude the paper with an enthusiastic tone. Um, obviously, there are some limitations here, aren't there? Yes, there are many limitations. And again, I was at a meeting, and I think this is a good comment someone made. If one considers a drug, water is, could be considered a drug. Too much water is toxic. So all compounds, all medicines, anything that we can think of can produce side effects. And we know about certain side effects related to AVs, related to immune problems. That's becoming a, a whole discussion. of What could be the immune problems associated with AV? How do you mitigate them? With LNPs and anything that gives the enzyme back to a patient who's missing the enzyme, it could produce an immune reaction. So, you know, that's a serious side effect that could be seen in all these therapies. In patients that are CRIM negative and patients that are that don't have any enzyme, when they're exposed to a wild-type enzyme by one of these treatments, they could make an immune response to that. It could mitigate the effectiveness of the therapy. And each one of those has its own sort of discussions about limitations. But overall, I think when we step back and say, would one of these treatments Given the right patient in the right clinical scenario and the right risk-benefit calculation for each individual patient, especially someone who's severely affected, would this be something someone would consider in lieu of a liver transplant? Could it be an option that is viable? 
I believe the answer to that is yes. And and I think that's what people want to hear and to know that there are better options than transplant out there because there are obviously so many issues with transplantation in itself. I mean, I, I mentioned that guideline article at the beginning, and I hope this means that when I go back to Patrick Forney and Matthias Baumgartner to talk about their next guideline revision, that maybe some of these therapies will be creeping in there. If you'd like to to read Chuck's paper, then please click the link in the podcast description or go to the journal web pages and search for genomic technologies, lessons from MMA. Chuck, it's been an absolute education for me listening to you speak. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, you're welcome. It's been wonderful to talk with you. And if anybody wants to write me an email, my email is also in the, in the, in the paper as well to further the discussion. Um, be careful. You'll be getting lots of fan mail. I <laughs> but I don't do mixed martial arts. <laughs> um, well, and thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. 